He is another victim of our ragtag of entrepreneurs. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial pursuit, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs all around the globe seeking to do the same thing you are. If you want to know more about this program or this podcast or want to get barraged by a lot of annoying pop-ups, check out our website, lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Yeah, buddy, it's Thursday morning. That means it's time for another Lifestyle Business Podcast. As many of you know, Ian and I have spent the last two weeks in the Philippines mentoring new startups and entrepreneurs, a lot of existing uh, entrepreneurs as well, helping them to move their business to the next level, and it's been extraordinarily rewarding. We are exhausted and uh, couldn't be happier at the way things have gone. You know, we had a lot of anxiety about this kind of thing, bringing people into our lives, and we're really promising a lot and asking for a lot of money and, and doing a big thing, and it's it could not have been more rewarding. And I want to say that just if there's anything in your life you know that you know you could do and you know is an opportunity but you're worried about you know maybe taking on too much responsibility or maybe you're anxious about how things are going to play out even if you do fail because you know Ian and I didn't do everything right these last two weeks even if you do fail like uh, my buddy Brian Polk who attended the event the last two weeks said you're going to fail forward by getting our fingers dirty by getting gritty and inviting people out here and really trying to go for it and trying to deliver for them I feel like hopefully we've helped change their lives, but we've definitely changed our lives as well. So I couldn't be happier. I had a pretty treacherous trip here to Manila, and I'm sure Ian did as well. He's on an airplane now, I hope safe and sound. I splashed it out on an amazing hotel room with a view of the whole of Manila. Don't tell him I did that. But I'm going to decompress here tonight. And why am I even talking? If you guys don't know, we've been on the summer marketing mashup the last four weeks. An amazing panel of podcasts, some of my favorites, the original Gangsters Internet Business mastery set it up and i'm honored to have been highlighted by them as a podcast worthy of being a part of this event today we're going to talk about along with the pat from smart passive income of course tim conley from foolishadventure.com we're going to talk about how to select a niche that's important for people just getting started out and that's important for guys like ian and myself who've been in the game we've been through 50 niches in five years and we're still looking to improve our process and our mindset about identifying those hot new pivots or niches which should bring our expertise and our team and to attack. So I hope you guys find this panel discussion as fun and as informative as I did. I had a blast and I hope you do too. See you next Thursday with, with our regular programming. All right, everybody, welcome to the Summer Marketing Mashup Lifestyle Business Podcast Edition. Hope that means there'll be a few yeah buddies sprinkled in here and there, but uh, hopefully you've listened to the Ooh, yeah. previous editions. <laughs> over at Smart Passive Income. Internet Business Mastery and the Foolish Adventure Show. Ian and I are currently in a little bit of a precarious situation here in the Philippines. It's been flooding. So we are going to hand off the MC duties for this show over to Jason from Internet Business Mastery. Uh, but today we're going to get kicked off about one of the biggest pain points for new and established entrepreneurs alike, which is what is that niche you're going to get started with or what is the next niche that you're going to launch in your business. So today we're going to share the best tips across our panel. And at the end, we are going to answer your live questions on the call. So if you're not on the call, if, or I'm sorry, if, if you are on the call, you please tweet out uh, that you are on or share it on Facebook so that as many people as possible can join us today. All right, Jason, I'm going to toss it over to you before my internet connection just goes kaput, man. Nice.
All right, so yeah, the topic of this evening is how to choose a profitable business niche that you will love. So let's go ahead and start off with Mr. Pat Flynn of Smart Passive Income. How are you doing there, Pat? Doing excellent. Thank you. Awesome. So, hey, what's your best tip for everyone listening about how to choose that niche? This is one of the biggest questions everyone asks. It's like that big sticking point right at the beginning. What's my niche going to be? It feels like the weight of the world. I want to pick the right one. What do you tell them? Yeah, well, I have a sort of system. I mean, it's not perfect, but I've done it before and I've done it publicly on Smart Passive Income. It's actually how I selected my niche for my security guard trading niche site. And I, the reason I'm selecting this one is to show that, you know, you don't have to necessarily start with something you're completely passionate about or, you know, what you, what you, you know, through your research, you might end up with something that might not be initially what you thought of, but it would be something that you would still have enough interest in to keep you going. Um, and as long as that passion is there for business or that passion is there for solving people's problems, then you can make your way through. Again, you don't need to necessarily be passionate about, you know, I'm not passionate about security guard training, but I'm passionate about building a website to help people become a security guard. Now, how did I land on that? Well, I have the system. I kind of learned it from Glenn Alsop from viperchill.com, and I kind of tweaked it to be a little bit more memorable. I call it the 777 system. The reason why I just picked that number, um, it's an arbitrary number, but you know, jack like a jackpot at the casino. So what you do is, or this is what I did, is I pick seven passions, seven problems, and seven fears that I have, and I write them down. Three columns, seven each, passions, problems, and fears. And the reason why those are important is because if, if you have a passion for something, you know, it's obviously something that someone else might have a passion for and you can probably uh, create a site for. Uh, seven problems, same thing, If you know, especially problems and fears. People are willing to learn as much as they can and potentially spend a lot of money to solve their problems or overcome those fears that they have. So once you write those down, then that's when I start to do research on each and every one of those things and start, you know, uh, it, with the security guard site, it was it was strictly keyword research. Keyword research being uh, finding keywords that related to that industry, and finding keywords that were highly searched for that had low competition. And I use tools like Market Samurai. You could just use for free the Google AdWords keyword tool to do that too, and just basic Google searches. But a tool like Market Samurai, and there's other ones like Longtail Pro out there that that'll do that much faster for you. And that's how I landed from. It was actually police training, which is something that my mom was interested in. Um, and I was kind of passionate about following her and her career. That pointed me to security guard training as a keyword to build the website for because security guard training had a lot of searches and had low competition. Now, the keyword aspect of it is just one component of the actual research of these particular topics. Another important uh, aspect is, is competition, and not just competition in Google, but just competition as far as what's already out there talking about that topic. Because if you research your, quote, competitors or potential partners that you could partner up with, if you do get into that niche, you can see what's out there already. You can see uh, what's working. You could see what's not working. And if there are any holes in that particular market that you can enter and kind of uh, bring a unique angle to, so uh, you know, to, to fulfill the the customers or you know the audience's uh, need you know I would I would also check to see what books there are on Amazon talking about that particular topic and see if there's anything missing see what people are liking uh, see what the reviews are on Amazon for those books and you know if people have specific complaints and needs I would go into forums and blogs and check to see what people really want to know about that particular topic and see if I can somehow create a website that would um, you know kind of target those specific questions uh, in, in some kind of congruent manner. And so that's kind of the 
you know, just the seven 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 system. I've done it a, f- a number of times now to create a number of different websites on, uh, on on different topics, and and really the the seeing what else is out there already and what I can do to improve the user experience for those who are looking for information about that particular topic or subject, passion, problem, or fear. That's that's really where, where, what you can do. Uh, so that's it. That's a great concise system. Seven seven seven. I I like that a lot. So. Uh Here's a question for you, though. I think you know people get stuck on the idea of competition. You said, okay, these are potential partners. H- how do you know if if there's too much competition or or you know, like how, yeah, you know, if there's opportunity in a in a market or not? You know, if there is competition out there, and it seems like there's a lot of people talking about that topic already, that's a good sign because that means there is a market out there for uh, for it already, and there are things you could do to kind of dissect what's out there and see where you can in- insert yourself. And, you know, it's not going to be it's not going to be that easy, especially if the market's saturated. But, you know, there are people out there who have recently entered really saturated markets and who are killing it. Uh, you know, one example is uh, Ryan and Josh from the minimalists.com. In just a year, they, you know, they just took something they were passionate about, which was, you know, just minimalism and, and, and kind of changing their lives from stuff filled to just happy filled and uh you know in a year they've had over a hundred thousand subscribers they wrote i think three books on amazon been featured on wall street journal and, and new york times i think and, and all these other sites uh and the minimalist market is huge but they brought a different angle to it and they brought their own voice which seemed to resonate with people and you know they were obviously doing it in a true and honest way not to make money but as a result they made some good money uh, because people trusted them and, and saw that it was, they were different from any, everyone else that was out there. Point worth underlining, Pat, if I can butt in here. I mean, by the way, that was one of my favorite interviews on your podcast. It was really inspiring to me to hear those guys. And I do think, you know, when you look out at a niche like that, we were talking to John McIntyre last night, who's in the copywriting niche, saying, you know, oh, there's you know, all kinds of people in the copywriting niche. Well, that's a great canary in the coal mine. It means there's a lot of people making a living off of copywriting. So if you can do what Pat said and take uh, your unique angle, what your unique value proposition is to a moneyed niche, I think that that's a great combination. So take a unique approach to a niche that a lot of people are making money in, and uh, that's a good formula for uh, niche success. Yeah, it was uh, Jack Bourne who said, uh, you know, great marketer, Jack Bourne. He's, he has this really great quote that I want everyone to think about when it comes to getting into a niche, especially if it's if it's one that there's competition out there already. What is your unfair advantage? Think about what you have that not anyone else has. And and one example was I had another interview with a woman uh, named Lane Amen on my podcast who got into the scrapbooking industry. And she's making six figures from scrapbooking. You know, so when, it, when all this talk about macrame and stuff, yeah, it could really happen. But she used her unfair advantage, which was her connections with the scrapbooking industry because she used to write for a scrapbooking journal or a magazine. And so she, her unfair advantage was the connections she had. So she was able to get people into a webinar, uh, kind of, kind of a, like, an, like an online summit, uh, and people would pay X hundred dollars for uh, access to all these great writers and, and kind of well-known people in the industry to have them teach them how to do certain stuff in that Um, in scrapbooking so unfair advantage sweet so i just got to figure out what my unfair advantage is in macrame and my true dream (laughs) will be realized 
I like it. Thank you very much for those insights, Pat. That's good stuff. Well, while we still clearly have you on the line, Dan and Ian, let's go ahead and throw over to you in Asia. And uh, you know, before you have to hop in your canoe and f- float down the, the streets that are filling up there, what is your top niche choosing tip that you have for the audience? All right, guys, let me uh, toss it over to my unfair advantage sitting right next to me oh, here. No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, Sweet. Um, <laughs> My tip here uh, in terms of um, finding a niche is uh, maybe a little bit different than uh, what Pat described, but it does have a lot of similarities, especially the uh, finding your unfair advantage. Uh, but I, my, my suggestion is to focus on skills, not interests. Um, so I think a lot of times like my interests are like the shiny objects, and uh, I, I try to shy away from those, and I try to focus on skills either that I've built in the past or that I want to build in the future. So when I look at a niche, um, and, and we're telling all the guys here that we're working with this week, it's like, what do you want to be involved in in the next like two to five years? Because uh, it's really like a long haul approach. Uh, and this is something that you're gonna be working at for a long time. So that's why I focus on skills because it takes a long time to build skills uh, and, and they're hard to come by too. So um, I, I focus less these days on uh, the keyword research and I focus more on like who's an authority in the space, who's putting out good quality content and products. Uh, what is it going to look like when I start putting out good content and quality and and, and quality products? Um, and and how's how's my competition going to be? Um, not so much with the keyword research, but with the actual products and with the content. That's an interesting approach that we I, I actually never articulated before. But we'll actually like look at the industry leaders and be like, all right, if we were like right next to them, if we were on the stage at the conference. You know, how would our approach be different? Like, would we be able to have a better product? Rather, than, So that's sort of a, a different approach that doesn't get talked about online very often. Oftentimes, especially in smaller niches, you have to be the leader in the niche in order to, you know, make these six-figure incomes that, that we're talking about. So um, imagine yourself on that macrame international convention stage and ask yourself, do you, could you bring something unique to the table there? Yeah, I really like the example of the macrame uh, woman because uh, she's building on something that she's done, uh, you know, probably a good portion of her life. And the same with me. I mean, some of, some of the, the niches that we're into right now, uh, I've, I've cultivated throughout my life uh, and, and I've just started to build those skills in a business. So there are things that I was already an expert on uh, and that made it much more easy to monetize than, say, starting from scratch. So I, I really resist the gamer's mentality. Um, of niche selection, and I, I go more towards the builder's mentality of, uh, of building out a skill set. I'm assuming you guys can still hear us. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Does yeah, that mean so, yeah, scrapbooking? Good. Is that no, what that no, means? No. Uh, let, no, that's let, like let me jump in here. <laughs> let me jump here and defend Lane. Uh, she's a uh, sometimes uh, host of the Foolish Adventure Show, and uh, she uh, has a scrapbooking uh, site. Uh, macrame is a different kind of craft. She she might do macrame <laughs> as as a fun hobby thing, but no, she's in in the scrapbooking uh, industry. All right. So um, my quick tip is is similar to, to Ian's. You know, we've been sort of trying to deconstruct what we've done over the last five years. And, you know, we have, feel like we have a similar approach to a lot of our niches, but sometimes we, we fail big time. Sometimes it's just very mediocre and sometimes it goes really well. So um, the one thing that's sort of common across all of our niches is that we're focused on finding work that we love rather than topics that we're interested in. And so it's, it's about being in love with that process of building businesses or developing uh, industrial design products, which is what, what one of our companies does. Um, you know, on, our, on the publishing side of our business where we have podcasts that help entrepreneurs, 
it doesn't really matter whether we're writing a podcast about outsourcing to the Philippines or SEO. Um, it's really about the work of publishing online and helping entrepreneurs that we fell in love with, not the particular topic. So I think if you can, you can sort of um, pin yourself down and find what what work you like to do every day on a consistent basis, that's a more sustainable strategy than saying, oh, I really like dogs, or I really like you know, reptile cultivation, or I really like paleo diet. Um, if, if more, if your approach is gonna be like, I love writing and researching, I love coaching and teaching, I love hosting conferences, or I love building products. I think that's a more sustainable approach to niche selection because you know, Ian and I have, in one way or another, probably been involved in like 45 niches in the last five years. Right. Seriously, probably in 10 niches. And how many are good right now? Four? Maybe four. four Maybe four. <laughs> Maybe. That's very liberal. So, yeah, that, that would be uh, uh, my advice. Yeah, I like that a lot. Of, we're giving people a lot of options here because I think people do get really stuck on the topic thing. You know, I have to pick that right search phrase, that right keyword that has a certain amount of numbers in Google. Whereas we've thrown out unfair advantage, we've thrown out pick a topic, we've thrown out look at your skills. And a couple books that have really helped me in this process are StrengthsFinder, which has an assessment that you take with it. You grab StrengthsFinder 2.0 for, I don't know, like 13 bucks on Amazon and go take that. And it gives you more of a global high-level view of what kinds of situations you thrive in and the kinds of people that you would work well with. And another book that really, really helped me as well was Unique Ability, which is based on the teachings by one of our uh, coaches in the past, Dan Sullivan. And he helps you kind of identify what is that common thread that you can take to different businesses, different topics, but that you know you're going to thrive when you do that. I happen to know that my, you know, I'm in an element of thriving where my energy is up, where I feel like I really have something to bring to the table when I am teaching and sharing knowledge and resources to help other people enjoy higher levels of freedom, fulfillment, and purpose. I just happen to do that for entrepreneurs right now through Internet Business Mastery. But I could probably be just as fulfilled. I don't know that I wouldn't make nearly as much money being a professor at a college. You know, just to illustrate, you know, there's lots of different ways I can apply those skills. Um, in, in different businesses, different topics, or even for different audiences as well. So I, I kind of like this, uh, you know, approach or framework because people really do get, you know, stuck on, oh, it's topic, it's about keyword. It's about a certain keyword, which is, I guess, a good segue for me to go ahead and throw in, which is my uh, tip. And that is, I'll throw in that idea of audience. I feel like a lot of, and I've been through a heck of a lot of internet business, internet, internet marketing related courses. And Without fail, all of them have pretty much the same process that they tell you to go through. You know, go to the Google AdWords keyword tool and start typing a bunch of things in. You know, maybe use a site like uh, eHow or uh, 43 Things or 42 Things, whatever it is, to, to get ideas. And those are solid tools and resources, and we recommend those as well. However, what you end up with is this whole list of keywords and titles. But I think when it comes to standing out and the unfair advantage and your passions and who you can really help, you know, those things get missed. And so no matter what, whichever these approaches you're taking to choosing a niche, I'd, I'd absolutely sit down and think of, well, who is the, and the word we use is avatar, who is that ideal prospect, that ideal customer, that ideal person that I feel like I could do my best work with? And I love the book, uh, Book Yourself Solid. And in there, he talks about the velvet rope policy. You know, the velvet rope is that exclusive thing that keeps, you know, they only let certain people through into the club at night. You know, they got an idea of who their clientele is and they're not afraid of just putting that rope across going, sorry, you're not getting in. And as 
business people, it's so tempting to go, well, my audience is everybody. I want to help everybody. The kiss of death. And you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a kiss. And I ask that question Every time I hear somebody say, hey, I've got this idea, I let them, you know, expound on their idea. And then usually my very first question is, okay, well, who's your audience? Who is it you want to reach? Who are you passionate about helping? And if their answer is everybody or they look at me and pause and are kind of quizzical about the, what I'm asking, then I know, you know, it's like, okay, well, here's something critical you got to do. You got to go find that avatar and sit down with that person. It's probably somebody you know or possibly a past version of yourself and you need to talk to that person, listen to their pains, listen to the things that they want to uh what what are they irrationally passionate about? What do they urgently have a pain that needs to be fixed when it comes to those things? And then you'll be able to inform those decisions a lot better of, well, what kind of content should I create? What kind of solution should I offer? What kind of uh, product do I need to bring to the market? What is my unfair advantage? Because maybe I've had experiences in the past that could really help that kind of person in a way that other people can't because nobody else has had those same experiences that I have. And so when you define that avatar really well and get in touch with them, everything flows a lot easier and I th- more easily. The, the, the ideas come more easily. The content comes more easily. But most of all, you stand out in the marketplace because when that avatar shows up and sees what you're offering, they go, okay, bam, I have found the solution for me. This person, it's like they understand my pain. They've got it. Or, hey, I found a place to belong and they stick around and want to be a part of it. They want to connect with you. They, wanna, uh, you know, they want more. And then eventually they want to buy what it is that you're selling. So that avatar, the idea of audience would be my big tip because I think it gets left out of the, the equation quite a bit. All right. So that would be, I guess, a good time to throw over to my cohort, Jeremy. What would you add to the idea of choosing a profitable niche that you will love? Well, it, it actually kind of ties into the audience thing. And that is just, you know, once you're looking at an audience, you want to absolutely make sure that that audience is actively looking for a solution. Because as much as uh, people might really enjoy the crafting of, of knitting or, you know, making macrame p- pants, if they don't actually have, uh, you know, what you mentioned before, an irrational passion or an urgent pain that can be solved, you know, that you can put out a solution for, it, it makes the, you know, the niche that you're looking for much, much harder. And, and basically, when people talk to me about niches, I do the same thing as you. I'm listening. And, you know, about 90% of the time, everyone is there audience even if even if it was somebody that's an expert at macrame pants they suddenly think that you know i a, a businessman who's might be a lawyer is totally interested in their product <laughs> and that's just you know kind of like not uh, yet understanding the audience but the other thing is you know uh, with that irrational passion or urgent pain you know being able to offer that solution is going to be really the key for making that niche profitable and sometimes you know we talk talk a lot about, you know, being very passionate about, you know, what business you go into. We're, you know, more on the become the expert side and be passionate about being the expert of this one thing. But no matter how passionate you are, again, if there is not a solution you can solve for them that people will be willing to pay you to to solve, then it, it almost doesn't matter how passionate you are. You know, you can be, uh, again, uh, you know, if, if somebody's absolutely into golf, 
and they're completely irrational about golf. And if you can help them take off a couple of swings off their, you know, golf swing or whatever, however golf works, you can tell I have no clue. I do Frisbee golf. That's about it. But, uh, and, and in Frisbee golf, you don't really care. You're just there to walk around and talk. But, uh, but, but as far <laughs> as, you know, like if they have that irrational passion, they will be very willing for you to take off, you know, be able to teach them to take off a couple of points. Or obviously, if they have an urgent pain, like, you know, maybe their marriage is on the rocks and you can give them some sort of solution to that. Or, you know, they're a mother that just found out that they've got to be on bed rest. And how do they work their whole life? They've got other kids. They've got their whole life to do. How, you know, if you can solve that for them, that's going to very much help guarantee that that niche that you're picking is going to be, you know, very profitable for you as well as fulfilling. You know, I, I would like to double down. on. I love this idea of focusing on an audience. The other day we framed it up to our students as an audience is one of sort of the safest and most profitable assets to build when it comes to business. So, you know, you could build a product, you could build an audience. And really like SEO keyword research is really just sort of a, an easy entry way of building an, an audience. It's one distribution path for your message. So I think like I'm really in agreement that you need to move past keyword research as soon as possible. That's like, you know, that's like if you're a FedEx Kinko's, it's one retail outlet, like one, one little store on one corner of a street. But that's not your whole message and that's not your whole audience. And uh, I really agree that focusing on a buying audience and developing them, that's one of the most powerful and secure ways to start a business. I know uh, a lot of times, too, when we're first starting businesses, it's like very inner focused. Um, but also, you know, I think the best one of the best things we can do is pull our audience or pull our market, start a conversation with them. Um, this goes with your point, too. It's like, what is the market need? Am I solving my own problem or am I solving the market's problem? Right. And that's exactly what the whole passion question uh, often forces us to do is try to solve our own problems. Well, that's not why we're in business. We're in business to be servants to our marketplace. So, you know, we obviously want to have more fulfilling lives and do things that we're passionate about. But we got to be careful that doesn't lead us astray to start just solving all our own problems all the yeah, time. Absolutely. And not going out there and helping anybody else. Well, it's funny when we first, you know, one of our first products, when uh, we built a membership site, we came up with this um, survey that we were going to give everybody that was all based on basically what we wanted to create for them. And, you know, we basically said rank it and then, you know, give us other things that might not be on that list that you want more. And all the stuff that we thought was going to be the absolute biggest thing, mostly because we just thought it would be fun to do, were ranked the lowest. And so we had to tailor that and go, wow, I'm so glad we knew to survey and find out what that actual, you know, what they actually wanted the solution for, which is obviously another tip, but it, you know, helped us create the exact solution for, uh, the, you know, our audience. And, um, and, and it almost seems magical. It's like, all we did is ask, and then we make this magical solution that of course they're going to buy because we made it exactly the way they wanted it. It, Gary Gary V uh, a while back uh, he said something that I think threw a lot of people off. He said something like, "Follow your passion. You can you can monetize your passion even if it's Smurfs or something like that." But then you look at Gary V and he's still in the wine business. <laughs> so I mean the 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 point there is that you know uh, Gary V followed his passion in building um, operations and things like that. But uh, he had a lot of legacy in the wine business, and, and he followed up on that. So I don't think that Gary Vee necessarily follows his own advice. Calling out the experts. I love it. Yeah, hit, <laughs> taking a hit at Gary Vee, man. That's just a swipe shot. All right, it's your well, podcast. You can do what you want. 
<laughs> well, and it, you nice. know, it's 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 so much easier to say follow your passion if you happen to have a passion that's in an incredibly, you know, easy to monetize, you know, niche. But being able to understand some of these other, uh, you know, strategies, uh, you know, will absolutely help you if if you don't happen to have a wine business for you already. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, uh, Jeremy, like. Our business is a great example of that. Lifestyle Business Podcast listeners will know that Ian started with this shiny piece of cat furniture that we thought was the bomb. And like he's, he had been developing it all through college and we were like, oh, this is going to change the industry of cat furniture. It's sort of <laughs> similar to like the yoga mat story from your buddy. Yeah. And, and we launched it in the market and we just like sat there and waited, you know, and just crickets, man. Just nobody wanted this thing. And when we started doing business to business projects like our portable bar company and our key box company, you know, those were real problems that people had, like they needed that stuff. And all of a sudden we started to become successful. So, I mean, that, that was uh, another example of, you don't have to have a blog or a podcast to pull your audience. You know, every business has an audience and you ought to be interacting with them and figuring out what it is that they need. So does that mean that Tim Ferriss doesn't work a four hour work week? <laughs> As we all know. <laughs> Just wondering. Uh, what are you saying here? <laughs> for business, right? You're going after anyway, everyone. Yeah. Just call out the big dogs. <laughs> Who else? Who else? Where is this podcast right. hosted? <laughs> call, call us, Tim. Call us. <laughs> this is going lifestyle business podcast, man. We can we can talk whatever trash we, we want. It's their yeah. problem to go with. <laughs> Comments are going on their site. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to Tim Conley. And before I throw it to him, we just want to tell you, this is a great time to start queuing up questions if you got them about how to choose a niche, because right after Tim, we'll be answering your questions. So you've got the webinar interface. Uh, There should be a question box right then. Go ahead and just type it right in there. And in the order they come in, we'll start serving those babies up and giving you answers. All right, Tim. What do you got? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm actually not going to talk about finding a, a niche because I realized something in this past week. I was helping out a member and she had this question about growing her business. And I took it to this really big level to uh, like saying she could make it into a million dollar business. And she had never conceived of her small niche as being possible of building a business within it that would do a million dollars a year. And I, and then that got me thinking about the fact that in the last couple of years, I've been using the word niche all the time. And I'm a, I, 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 my background's as a marketing consultant. And for uh, 12 years before starting a podcast in this, in this, uh, uh, internet marketing world, I didn't use the word niche. I used the words market and industry because I looked at building, uh, about entering into markets that were sustainable ones that were big enough to play a bigger game in and and then i started jumping into this world and and giving this advice of go out and choose a niche and then i realized that this word has overtaken my vocabulary and it's preventing me from being able to really help people achieve a much bigger game than their than their um, by by focusing on the word niche, keeping it small. I, uh, in the beginning, I would always talk about let's do a niche uh, to find find that a specific spot that you could grow from, and I'd forgotten about that. 
and this this is something if if you're if you're someone listening and all you want is a small business great no problem but if you really want to play a bigger game then you need to start thinking about industries that you're going to play in and not as small niches and that's that's the best advice i think i could give today is that you shouldn't limit yourself to just something small you know that brings to my mind. I, I like that a lot of big thinking, and and it's it's true that in the internet marketing world we can fall into that trap of of just thinking uh, smaller because that that is the way to stand out at first. But an example comes to my mind of you know nerd fitness. Steve Cam, who found his spot in the market. In fact, he took two markets. So this is one way to think bigger, but at the same time find your place to stand out. He took the fitness market incredibly huge, incredibly competitive. And like the gamer nerd geek market, also very broad. And he took the cross section of those two. And honestly, if he'd come to me and been asking my opinion, I'd been like, interesting, not sure if it'll, you know, because of course, I've got that stigma of, well, the guy drinking Code Red playing World of Warcraft, he doesn't want to work out, isn't that the <laughs> point? But look at the community. Like, I think he he's tapped into an industry really well. And in fact, he's tapped into two industries. And uh, he's he's clearly headed for big things, in my opinion. I, you know, I think he's tearing it up. So... Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if that applies to the point you were, but that's kind of what, when you said what you said, it, it, that sparked that for me and kind of how to combine this idea of have your advantage, have your edge, but think big at the same time. Because he's not limited uh, by just, just staying in that, uh, in the, this concept of a ner- uh, nerd fitness because of the fact that he's in fitness, he can find ways right. of, of making that more mainstream, especially since now it's kind of it's cool to be a nerd. It's cool to be a geek. A long time ago, that wasn't the case, but now it's really popular, mm-hmm. and there is a nerd culture out there and a geek culture that's actually moving to mainstream. And that's a way that he could move uh, up further and further and be on television. Yeah, he could he could be an international celebrity in the fitness world if he wished to move up because he's in an industry as opposed to just in a niche. Yeah, this is like thinking beyond the keyword and thinking beyond your particular product and value proposition and just sort of asking yourself what is it that your products help your customers achieve? Sort of and, and what what one way we do that is by writing mission statements for each of our brands. And that's a great rubric for deciding new product lines to get into within that company because, you know, if it's uh, for our cat furniture business, I mean, it's, it sounds cheesy, but we really do have a mission statement that's to help our to help our customers have you know the coolest, most chic environments for their pets available. And if, if that means we have to get outside of the cat furniture game and start offering what cat clothes or something, you know, that might inspire us to think a little bit bigger. So that's one tactic we use is is thinking beyond that keyword like cat furniture and starting thinking about what is it that we're empowering people to do. Cat furniture is a bad example. It's, this is we gotta move past it. <laughs> no, actually, cat furniture is a great a great one because of the pet industry. Pet industry, right? There you go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what about the ferret furniture? They need furniture too, right? I mean. Endless Don't get them started, guys. Please, lazy boys. That's Jeremy's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Good tips. Good tips, everyone. So let's go ahead with the time we have left, the second half of this, and go and in, dive into people's questions. They're starting to pour in here, and we want to get to as many of these as we possibly can. And this first one, it's going to come to you, Pat. It goes back to your idea of an unfair advantage. And Carol is wondering, do you think everyone has an unfair advantage? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I think so, but I don't think anyone I don't think everyone has found it or believes they have it, and that's the problem. I think uh, you know, people kind of gravitate toward this sort of uh kind of negative look at at, at where they're at when they're entering a new market. Um, but I think you have to take a positive approach and know that you have one. You just have to find it or or learn it or, you know, just find it or create it. You have to, you know, I, th- I, have, I think everyone can, you know, has one or can make an unfair advantage in any particular in any particular industry that they want, to be honest. And I think, you know, whether that's that unfair, I agree that that people have that unfair advantage within them and they just need to not undervalue it. And maybe it's just going to take some time of being creative, maybe asking people around you to find it. But even if you're not somebody who who finds that inner, that unfair advantage from within, I mean, here's an example of where we found the unfair advantage externally from us. We came into the internet business space. It's not like the internet business space needed another set of people talking about internet business, but nobody was using podcasting to do it when we started. And so we started a podcast. You know, that was our unfair advantage when we got started. Now, of course, we've had to continue in it and adapt because you know, that's only going to last for so long. And so eventually you do have to, I think, go within and find that. But there's also, I think, external factors that you can bring to that to the table, you know whether it's Lane's connections, for instance, uh, the t- kind of type of channel that you're using to reach your audience, whatever the case may be, and you know maybe you have super efficient systems. I mean that's how FedEx broke in and, and changed everything. They came up with systems that nobody else. They just created an unfair advantage, and that's why they took over at the time. Now there's more people that have entered that market, so they've had to keep ahead, but. Uh, you know, Apple does that time and time again. Yeah, as well. I just want to say about like the language that we use, uh, no one is born with an unfair advantage. You know, so we don't have them. Uh, unfair advantages are things that we either find because there's a, a hole in the marketplace or we create by developing the skills necessary to take advantage of holes in the marketplace. Interesting. So would you say Michael Jordan was not born with an unfair advantage for no, basketball? No, he was not because he got cut from his uh, uh, from the team. He could, he didn't make the team. Uh, what was it? His freshman or sophomore year? And then yeah, he, he even said that he okay. didn't have an advantage. He just practiced more than everybody. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know. Okay. Yeah, agreed cool. on that on that point. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you. Sorry, the internet's cutting out here, but I think uh, Dan and I often bring up John Mayer. I think he would be. Uh, wildly offended if you said that he had an unfair advantage from birth, uh, you know, given that he locked himself in a room for hours at a time practicing his guitar. Right. right. Excellent point. Well, and w- actually one way that, you know, we actually, when we first started, even with the podcast, there were a few, uh, you know, experts podcasting and, you know, one of the things we looked at was, I don't know that we thought of it as an unfair advantage at the time, but we just looked at what the other guys were doing and did it different, you know, and, and what everybody was doing was talking like they were these huge experts, these gurus that, you know, you could never talk to them directly. And, you know, they were (laughs) acting like that type of a person. So we came in and what, what could have looked like a, you know, uh, a downside about us where we were regular guys that had some internet businesses. We were making a full-time living. We weren't driving Ferraris with those guys, but we used that to our advantage and people ended up enjoying that far more than somebody that was just preaching to them exactly how to do it. They didn't sound like they had ever failed. You know, they sounded like these magic guys that, you know, just were perfect every single time. And we went a different direction with it and just stayed true to kind of what we were 
really in general and we'd talk about our failures and we we basically made something made being the new guy and being guys that weren't multimillionaires yet and at the time you know that's what we made into what became our kind of unfair advantage in the way that that ended up being what everybody would rather hear than just experts saying this is the only way to do it and you know that's because i know that because i didn't fail so so that, you know, we were kind of twisted it into, you know, we just did the opposite of what other people were doing. And that ended up working out for us. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I took, how I approach a lot of what I do. I see what everyone else is doing and try something different. Like my email list, I don't sell on my email list at all. I only provide content to it and people love it. That's why I have a 70% open rate. Nobody was talking about how much money they were making. They were talking about making money online, but no one was actually sharing how much. So that's what I did. And that's why you see my income reports and those have become the most popular posts on my site. Uh, so yeah, definitely, you know, you can create your own unfair advantage by seeing what else, uh, what everyone else is doing, just doing the opposite. And we're dying for your list. Believe us. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of what everybody does. 70% open rates. Come on. All right. Jeff asks, does it make sense to tackle a few ideas at the same time? Well, I, geez, we, we talk about very much focusing. Uh, that's just been, Jason and I are very big on that. We, we both made mistakes of of trying to do 27 things at once at first, and it just completely diluted the process. I had in my mind, oh, everybody says that one out of 10 businesses fails, or I'm sorry, succeeds. One out of 10 businesses succeed. So I figured, well, I'll just make 10 businesses so I can at least have one make it. And um, it was incredibly painful because I'm working 12, 14 hours days, more than I ever did when I had a job, just to try and get all these businesses to work and really what what made it this all work for me was focusing on one like once Jason and I went okay it's internet business mastery this is what we do together we're going to put our time and effort into that that's when you know we went from oh it's a cool little extra income for us to making seven figures i mean it changed everything when we focused so we're big on the focus yeah we didn't plan on it becoming a business cuz we all had we had we had other things we were doing first. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. We just we really push people to try to fail because, I mean, you have so few resources, especially if you're just getting started and you're starting a startup, especially if you're doing it on the side, you don't have any money or track record. I mean, you're just you're just hamstringing yourself, quite literally, if you're trying to go for two or three niches. And, and the way this stuff develops is that you learn so much by going through a fail process that you're not actually starting from scratch your second time around. And I think it's, it's maybe tough to visualize that at the beginning, but it's more like an iterative process. You take a few steps forward, you get knocked down, and then you keep stepping forward from that point with the resources, um, with the team, with the cash flow, with everything that you build up from that first niche, you can take that into your second niche. And that's what Ian and I, if you could imagine, it sort of looks like a tree. You know, you sort of head out and then you start branching out as your, your business is basically an entity that gathers intelligence about marketplaces. So focus that on one marketplace, get as much intelligence as you can and then start to branch off to where you see. So we definitely, same as you guys, um, if you're gonna start three or four niches at, on the side when you don't have a business gone, it's just like, man, you know, that's just really hurting your chances at um, pushing something to a, to a fail point, which is a success for a startup because you're, you're trying to push something to fail to see if it's gonna be a success or not or to uh, a success point. So absolutely focus. Yeah, I'm just going to third down that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people see what I do, and I have all these different things going on at the same time. iPhone apps, niche sites, the blog, writing a book, and, and all these things. But I'm working on each one of those things one at a time. And I'm at a point now in my business where a lot of those things are running automatically. 
you know, Green Exam Academy only takes a couple hours a month. So that's working for me already. But when I first started, I was only working on that and that only for maybe two years before I started my second site. Um, you know, starting that site even while I still had a, a job and I was just using it for notes. But all my focus was on that. So definitely I agree with Dan there. When you're first starting out, you really have to just focus on one thing to know that when you pick a topic and you put all your effort into it, that the failure was because of the topic or just that that topic didn't jive with you, not because you didn't put all the effort that you could have put into it. All right. Here's a, a question. Two or three people asking you know, a question along these lines, and that is, you know, how do you know that you've chosen a niche that can be profitable? Or how can you know as quickly as possible that you're not wasting your time, that the niche is actually going to go somewhere? Well, I, I would say that actually kind of goes back to what I talked about. And if there's that irrational passion or urgent pain, and you're, you're seeing that there's this, uh, you know, solution that people are looking for, and you have a way either to fill that, you know, uh, solve that solution for them, or um, you have a different way than some of the other people that are doing it that can, you know, get them to that solution fastest. So that's, that's just one of the ways that I definitely look at things now when I start, look at starting something. Uh, Jeremy's got something hidden in there that, as he was saying it, was that the fast way to find out is are other people already making the kind of money that you're wanting to make in that in that niche? If, yeah. if they're not, if there aren't people that are truly succeeding and on the Internet, it's kind of tricky to find out because everybody is killing it and doing epic stuff. So, so they uh, say, yeah, yeah exa exactly. We're so, killing it over here. So, so, so it may be a little tricky to find out if they're actually making a decent amount of money. But like just as an example, you go into something like ClickBank and you can see what's selling, uh, which means the person who's uh, created that product is actually making money. Maybe not. The the, all the different affiliates involved in that product, they may not be making much money, but the actual guy selling the product is. So that, that would be one way to just do a quick little sample. But find out if other people are selling. If other people are selling, it's going to be easy for you to come in and make a better product to stand out. Uh, that's that's what I would go for. I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, people on, online for some reason are, are, are so shy when it comes to shaking people down. Look, we're business coaches. Try to shake us down. Ask us what's going on. Whenever we get into industry, we're always asking, how much money are these guys making? How are they doing it? What are they providing to their customers? And we start to ask ourselves, we call it like the precedent case analysis. If somebody else can do it, you can find a way to model that behavior and then do what Pat said is bring your own unique twist, do something iconoclastic or a little bit different in that niche and you can carve out a piece of that pie or make the pie greater which is often the case on online marketing um, for yourself. The other thing you know, that people are really shy about is sell something as soon as possible, especially if you're starting like a new content marketing business or a new blog. You know, put a product out to that audience as soon as possible and see, what you, see, see if they're going to respond to that. You know? We call that buy now blogging. Get started just selling stuff. We, we do that with, the, with, our, with our, all of our products. We're selling it as fast as possible. Whoa. Turn yeah. down a building over here. <laughs> uh, hey, Dan, uh, you've got, uh, can you link to, when the show goes out, can you link to uh, a podcast that you did? Uh, it was about a year ago where you went into like the things you don't do in uh, doing some market research on some competitors. You, it was like five or nine things that you, that you guys said, you know. Yeah, Tim, 
Oh, uh, yeah. I remember that. And w one of the dirty tricks from that was uh, we call our competition. So this is something we always do before we're planning on getting into a market is we'll give our competition a call uh, and see how they're doing. We just got a, we just got a, how long, maybe a thousand word report from our employees in San Diego who went through the process of being a customer with one of our major, uh, major competitors and they laid out like, well, they seem like, you know, this is where they're really inefficient. It doesn't seem like they know anything about this, blah, 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 blah. And so now we're thinking about how we're going to position our brand relative to that experience of being customers of our, of our competitors. Sharky, I know. <laughs> Sharky. Well, no, that's a great idea. I mean, Michael Masterson <laughs> talks about that in Ready, Fire, Aim. I mean, you've got that, you've, you've got all the information. Call them up and say, look, I'm a student. Uh, of this industry trying to figure out and you are right and why why not absolutely i think that's a great idea and yeah so get get to that first sale as quickly as possible because at that point that's when everything changes you we just made a video about this actually recently we call it the money milestone if you can get to that first sale also, not only will your mindset change and your motivation and your overwhelm will change, but then you've proved to yourself you've chosen a niche that you can get people to buy in. So the whole focus early on should be just, you know, whether it's throwing up a blog and then getting somebody else's product as an affiliate or whatever, like to figure out how to sell something as quickly as possible and just prove to yourself that you've got a niche that you can make money in. All right, let's see here. Next question. Okay, no, actually, let's get to somebody else that might be able to. Okay, here's a question about, uh, it has to do with when you're surveying people. We talked about surveying a market. What if you survey the market and it shows, you know, half the market or half the audience, you know, thinks one thing's really important and then you got a bunch of the market that thinks something else is important. Which side of that market do you help out? Which direction do you go? Which product do you make? I, I want to jump in because uh, uh, I'll let others actually answer that question. But one of the things that comes up, I get asked this a lot about testing things. And it really comes down to your sample size. If you've got two, if you surveyed and you get two uh, surveys back and it was split 50-50, yeah, yeah. you don't know anything. You, you, you need a large enough sample size to actually get a feel for what your market wants. And that, that's... And how big would you say that is, Tim? What, what, what's a big enough sample uh, size, do you think, in, in your experience? In a lot of cases, minimally for, say, smaller decisions, about 1,000 people. Uh, to be able to find out if you've got something that is statistically relevant and and then in reality it's probably going to run closer to uh, 5,000 or so which is which is uh, not very helpful right for somebody just getting started because you don't have those people so you have to find other ways of actually getting real market data instead of just uh, making guesses off of say 25 responses from your list of say 300 people you, know, you you really need to get real data. With as you 100% just, there, Tim. What's that? Oh, so I was, I was agreeing with you, Tim, on, on the real data point. And uh, I think another flaw that comes up in some of these uh, some of these studies or, or uh, findings is asking people their opinion without asking for their money. Um, people generally have a very different opinion when you ask just for their opinion versus asking them to buy your product. Speaking of asking for opinions, we did something that could be useful for marketers. It's a... It, it's a tactic that we sort of did unwittingly. We, we surveyed our audience. Um, we asked them, like, basically, here's the product. It was the, our, the product that we're doing right now, the Tropical MBA. We said, which date would you like us to throw it? And so we basically, and you could incorporate this into a lot of different things, but we let them sort of help us to evolve the product. And 80, through that first weekend, 80 people listened to the podcast and came to our website and said, 
which date that they, they would like it to be. And then 25 people off of that people of 80 lists bought a $2,000 product. So I don't know if there's correlation there, but I think it's an interesting idea that you would survey your audience to help them define, like, like uh, Jeremy was saying, and yeah. then they have sort of an ownership in the product. And then, then, and also you've got a momentum, which is that I'm already participating here and there's some momentum and then I just got to do the next thing, which is, you know, become a part of the product. So that's one thing that worked for us in terms of surveying. And I think, you know, it could, could apply in some, some of your situations out there. Okay. I'm going to give a slightly different perspective. I mean, I, to one degree, I agree with what Tim was just saying. The more data you have, the better. And you absolutely have to make decisions off of data as much to as much as you possibly can in your business. Now, I completely realize we've got a lot of beginners on this call who don't have access to getting 5,000 data points or even 1,000 data points and maybe not even 100 data points. And so I will throw out the fact that we do quite a bit of surveying and we have over the several years of doing our business. And while I enjoy having as many data points as I possibly can, and I recognize, as, as uh, I think Dan was just saying in the end, or maybe it was even Ian was saying in the end, it's when they vote for their wallet that you really have something significant because they'll say one thing and then they could pay otherwise. But if you're just starting out and you haven't got anybody to buy yet and you just got to make the best case guess that you can. I love the idea of, you know, look at your competitors, even go through their process, survey the people that you do have, even if it is only 300 people. And I'll throw out this little piece of hope in my experience with our list. You know, when we did our first product, we only had maybe 3,000 people to survey and probably got like 100 responses at the time. And in my experience, by the time, at least with our list, when we've gotten to 50 responses, typically the statistics don't change after that point. Meaning by the time we've gotten 50 responses, we actually can look at the data. And even if we get two to 200, the relative percentages are going to stay the same. And that, now that's not always going to be the case, but I do want to throw that out for a bit of hope for people who have smaller lists to ask. I agree. You got to get as many data points as you can. And the best data points are sales. But that is my experience with surveying. Well, one other thing I was just going to mention about that is out of all the surveying we've done, it's it's a lot. We generally now add a survey before every launch as even part of the launch process, because, of course, you know, if if somebody if you ask somebody a question and they give you those answers, they that's just one more kind of like excitement. Yes, they're now sort of part of it. And they you know, our I think our list now uh, people that have been there for a while understand that when we have a survey come out, something cool's coming. And they want to be a part of it. And, you know, they're following that process. But the other thing I just wanted to say was that in all the surveys we've had, I, I remember maybe one time when it was close to 50-50. You know, it's it's not a, at least I guess for us, it, it hasn't been a normal process to see it be, you know, 48-52 or something. And we're like, oh, man, it's barely any difference. It's usually pretty, you know, uh you know, one sixty-two percent or something at the very least, and then you could even survey again to, uh, I guess you could call it, you know, dig down deeper on, you know, the two things that are getting, you know, the fifty percent. Uh, one of the one things brought up there is that using uh, surveys, you when you do get a response, a lot of those people end up buying, and a lot of that I believe is the engagement level is that once you get people engaging into something, they're most likely to buy. You may not end up with real data, like real knowledge about something, but you may uh, have your audience become really engaged in the creation of this product that it ends up selling very well. Yeah, it's worked that way for us. I would also like to make sure... That's what we saw. Yeah, and that's, that's really cool. And also, you know, maybe part of the reason you guys are 
not always splitting 50-50 is that you're asking really good questions. That's probably a good place to make sure that I get a lot of surveys sent to me and I'm just like, I don't know what this person's going to learn from this. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a good place to sort of get a gut check from, from your fellow internet marketer and ensure that you're asking the right kinds of questions that are going to be meaningful. How do you survey and find out if you don't have a list at all? Are there ways to collect data? Uh, do you have do you have some cash? Because if you've got enough capital and you're ent- entering into a marketplace, you can actually hire a company that does exactly that, where they will go in and determine by surveying uh, your demographic uh, to find out how likely they are to buy a particular product or or their interest levels or their engagement levels. This is something that you can do, but a lot of people, that's advice that I've never heard anyone ever give to someone entering into a niche, but it's, it's something that's very common for companies that are going to dive into a bigger, a bigger marketplace. Yeah. On the money side, I mean, one of the things that I, I did on, um, a market that I went into was I actually ran Google AdWords to a um, to a survey, and you could probably do the same thing with Facebook, being really targeted to try and find the general area on the paid side for relatively cheap. Now you're not going to get obviously the same data as Tim's talking about, but uh, one of the other things uh, I've seen is um, if you if your market has a forum, being able to have people there you know, sending them to a survey. I've seen that work before on obviously the freer, the harder it is usually in terms of, you know, it's, it's generally free to go to a forum and ask people. Um, whereas obviously what Tim said, uh, Tim, do you even, uh, know some general prices for that? I mean, I know some, but they're really expensive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so we'll 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 skip we'll skip that. I can give some like you know alternative advice if you're at the point where you don't have a list and like you're running around forums and stuff. You really ought to consider the possibility of actually meeting some of your target market in real person or, or getting them on the telephone. This is going to be way more effective than going to a random place on the internet and paying people to answer questions. I mean, you got to understand who these people are. And if you're at square one, that's the square one step is to sit down with your target market and to figure out what really makes them tick. And so, I mean, I think, you know, especially in the online space and the tech startup space, this is like the most undervalued thing. And I think that that's what's going to make you, if you look around at this phone call, you know, We've all done, we intimately know our markets. We've, we've met hundreds of people, you know, hundreds of our students, hundreds of our fellow entrepreneurs. That's the knowledge that's translating, you know, uh, helping us to inform all of our judgments. So, you know, if you don't know th- these people, you got to get them on the horn. That's, that's the bottom line. And then that's going to help to define how you take the next steps and start to build that list. Yeah, I've definitely, uh, you know, done the whole meetup.com thing. And anytime I go meet uh, my market, I even now I still learn something. Uh, You know, we've seen kind of our market shift, you know, some things, some different ideas that used to be really popular. Now things have shift because economy shifts. And and when you actually, you know, when I would go to these Internet marketing groups, whether in Salt Lake or even in San Diego, uh, you know, it's just interesting to hear that person live and, you, you know, see what their issues are directly. It's it's definitely eye opening. All right. Our final question here. Somebody here has a niche that they're very interested in, they're very passionate about, but it's a very popular niche. 
And so they're wondering, should I still pursue it? They don't say what the niche is, but you know, let's, let's say it's something like dating or weight loss or should they still pursue that niche? Well, it's funny because if Steve from Nerd Fitness had have asked us, hey, sh- should I go in the fitness market? <laughs> I would have probably first facepalmed it going, oh my gosh, that's a massive market. But he he found the right angle to go at it and does incredibly well now. So it's funny because I, I definitely come from kind of the inspiration uh, side of things and, and go, if you can find that right angle that, you know, other people aren't doing and just hit the market with that, I definitely, you know, if you've got that passion behind it, am all for that. The capital A, like that's, that's what we're coming at. You know, if you, if you have a, a fitness, here's the thing that I think people find really difficult at the beginning is telling people to take a hike and go away. If you're not telling 95% of the visitors to your website that this website's not for you, your website's not for anybody, yeah. especially if you're in something like the dating niche. So it's like if you're not a single male world traveler, you know, looking to hook up every single night of the week, please leave. There's plenty of other sites for you. If you're not a Christian woman looking to blah, blah, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like you really have to identify who your site's for and who it's not for in the beginning if you're getting into competitive niche. Sorry, buddy. Did I? No, I I just keep talking, guys. And and asking asking that question of uh, six people who actually uh, jumped into uh, the most competitive uh, uh, industry on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Whether or not you should do something that's in a competitive market. What? Here, 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 here. Pot there's, kettle black. There's yeah. Go do dog training. Yeah, Go yeah, do dog yeah. training. There's something to also be said for uh, for the hunger. Like I, I never underestimate the uh, the underdog, and I'm not sure exactly how to quantify that. But uh, you know, uh, our buddy here in, with uh, Nerd Fitness, man, he just must have had uh, a hunger that we could only imagine. You know, actually, to propel him. To actually, success. it's worth listening to his interview on the Rise of the Top podcast. I mean, his story is amazing and. Steve Cam worked his tail off and he and it, it, you know it was a very long time to, for him to prove that concept so I think go listen to that interview we'll try to link you up to that at uh, the rise to the top show and uh, I mean he was working his tail off just like oh, yeah. I know every single person on this call was working their tail off too so hunger that's that's yeah with that's the big, big markets deal. I would say you know one of the things that when I started there was no such thing as failure because I knew I wouldn't quit I was going to make this work. I didn't know if, if internet business in general would work, but I, I, I don't know what it was. I just was not going to quit. So if you're going for a big market, you've, you've got to think of it. I think that way. I also had this saying that my grandma told me when I was really young and she was like, you know, this whole world-class traveler tried, was a politician, all this different things. And one of the things she told me was if, uh, if anybody else has done it, you can do it. And if nobody's done it, you can be the first. And as cliche, whatever as that is, you know, when I'm 14 or something, I've remembered that the whole time. So, you know, when I saw somebody talking about, oh, I've done this with internet business, I, I just was like going, look, if he really has, I can totally do it. If he hasn't, I will be the one to prove it only because of that mindset. But I think you have to have a really strong mindset like that to go after one of the big, big markets, just like they were saying about Steve and, and all of us trying to go after this crazy internet business market. If you're trying to get into a big market and you see all this huge competition out there, I think you're actually at a huge, you have a huge advantage because you're coming in at a point after everyone else has where you can see what's working and what's not working, and you can tailor your business 
to address all of that, to have the things that do work and make it better and, you know, not include the things that didn't work for those other people. So you have actually a huge advantage. You just got to work for it and, and hustle and be hungry. I think those are excellent words to end on. Hustle, be hungry, <laughs> go for it. Appropriate Absolutely. for the LBP. Thanks, guys. <laughs> We're on yeah, brand message here. Right. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> well, since this is since this is for your podcast, Dan and Ian, what are the final words you want to leave us with? Well, I mean, it's it's been a actually it's it's been an honor that all you guys would come over to our neck of the woods. I'm huge fans of all all of you guys. So it's 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 been awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us on this series, and uh, I'm glad we could wrap up with the traditional LBP <laughs> chainsaws in the background, hammering, sweeping in Asia. This, this is good. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening to the LBP, and especially thank you for everybody who joined us on the live call and, and for helping to make the summer marketing mashup a success. Special thanks to the guys at Internet Business Mastery for uh, being the original gangsters and for setting this whole thing up together. Uh, you guys have inspired tens of thousands, I'm sure. It could be hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs to get started. But yeah, yeah, buddy, so thank you for inspiring <laughs> this event. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. So all the listeners on the podcast thanks, feed, we'll you see you guys next Thursday. Booyah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't be shy. We've got a mailing list, lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Go there, get yourself signed up, and we'll keep you up to date on everything we do. Anywhere, Man, I should be a rapper or something. <laughs> <laughs> Let's I don't get think moving you on. Have the skills. Let's get moving on. To, but that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs>